Let's pray. Father, you have called us out of darkness into light. You have made us your children. This is reality for those that know you as their Savior, as their Lord. And Father, I pray and I ask, Lord, that you would not leave us as we were when we walked through these doors. But because of your word, because of this time that we have spent with each other today, Lord, that we would love you more, that we would have a greater understanding of who you are, a greater appreciation for the life that you have given to us in your Son, and that through all of these things, Lord, that you would be glorified, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The world comes up with a lot of excuses as to why they will not recognize Christ as Savior. We come up with a lot of excuses as to why we do not obey the commands of God. The question that I want to ask and that our, our verses today are going to answer are, are these excuses valid? Do they hold water? To find out, we need to dig into this word. But before we get into our verses from today, let's spend a few moments remembering where we are in the Gospel of John, how we got here, and even where here is. Let us go back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 1 through 5. But what was the purpose of Jesus stepping down out of eternity into our realm? Why did he become incarnate of a virgin, becoming fully human? The why of the life of Christ is fully explained to us in chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then for the first time in the Gospel of John, we're told that God loves. And even what it is that he loves, beginning in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Here, we are given insight into the ministry of reconciliation that has been given that has been given to the one who was in the beginning, who was with God, and who is God. That ministry, the cost to take away the sins of the world, was told to us by Jesus, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 3. Those verses are the catalyst to verse 16 of chapter 3. They are the reason that John added verse 16. And here are those verses. Here's what Jesus told Nicodemus that so moved John that he penned verse 16. Jesus said, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It was the cost of the ministry of reconciliation that moved John to write, God so loved the world that he gave his son. And that the father loved his son was evident in the life that Jesus lived, in the miracles that he performed, in the lessons that he's taught, as John 8, 28. And the evidence that Jesus loved his father 
was manifested to the world by his obedience to his Father. That's John 14.31. And Jesus knew, all the while knew where he was going, what awaited him at the end of his earthly ministry of reconciliation. That's John 18.37. But what is this reconciliation that Jesus came to provide? What was his ministry here on earth? Why did the Father love him? Those things are told to us in verses 31 through 36 of chapter 3. When Jesus said, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he, has sent, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This life, the one that Jesus is described to be, has to be different, is different than the life that these people had. Because those people that Jesus was talking to, when he said that, they were all living, breathing souls. They were just like us. They had hearts that were beating, lungs that were processing air, minds full of desires, dreams, emotions. They had houses, jobs, families. And they were all dead. They didn't have life. If they did, there would have never been a reason, no need of the sacrifice of the Son, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. No, the life that they lived was death. And the wrath of God remained on them. They had no hope of reconciliation to the Father. They could not stand before him. They could not live in him. And this is why the Father sent the Son why the Son became flesh and tabernacled with us. Why the Son and the Father sent the Spirit to make us alive. But why did God so love the world? Are we really just that good looking? That worthy? That loving? Not a chance. We are told the reason why he loved the world. And we're told that in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. For Yahweh will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased Yahweh to make you a people for himself. Okay, so which is it? Does God so love the world, as told in John 3, 16, or a people, as in what we're told in 1 Samuel? Well, how can we know? Chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus said to them, For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. Here is a demarcation line between the people of God and those that are not, between the world that God so loves and the world that we are told to hate in 1 John 2.15. Between the haves and the have-nots, between those that have life and those that do not. But that's not the why concerning Christ and the life that he lived and gave for those called the world in John 3.16. That is told to us next. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me 
I will never cast out, John 6.45. The Father has given a people to the Son. Wait a minute, mister. You've just triggered me. That's a microaggression. I don't care for what you just said. In fact, I hate what you just implied. What do you mean the Father has given a people to the Son? That implies that we are like sheep, like cattle, that we are things to be given. That implies that we're slaves, and I'm not a slave. I've never been a slave. I'm a free agent. I am an American. But Jesus says differently. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Chapter 8, verse 34. And here, God in Romans 6, verses 16 through 18. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are a slave of the one who you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which we were committed. And again, you didn't commit yourself. You were committed. You were bought. And, ha and having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. No, dear saints, you have never been free. We have always been a slave. And sin is a horrible, nasty, ugly master that comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. But God, because he is love, because of that he gave a people to his son, and his son, out of love and obedience to his father, came to earth to redeem those people. Hear, hear how Jesus saw his purpose in life. What he saw as the mission of the Father. Verses 38 through 40 of chapter 6 of John. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on that last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. But why in the world would Jesus care if a people were given to him or not? Why would he step down out of eternity, forsake being in the likeness of God, all for a people who are, we have to admit this, we are all hard-headed, stiff-necked, and completely sinful? We're told that in chapter 17, verses 2 and 3, when he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you, gave, you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. The reason that it mattered to Jesus that his father gave him a people ain't us. It isn't the people. It's glory. Glory for the father. Glory for the son. Glory that is empowered, fueled by, directed by love. We, the elect, are spoken of in those verses. And if you are, if you are spoken of in those verses, you are not a free agent. You're a sheep that's under one shepherd. Saints, if you are a saint, we must understand that all value that we have is found in love. But it isn't our love. It's the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the love of the Spirit. And humans do have value but only because of love. Again, the love of the Father, the love of the Son. In love, God created humans. In love, the Father sent the Son. In love, the Son obeyed the Father. In love, the Son asked that the Father, and they sent the Spirit to regenerate those that because the Father loved the Son, he gave him a people. And out of love for the Father, the Son loved these people, sacrificed himself in obedient love 
to the Father, purchased them back from eternity of hell, and out of love sealed them with the Holy Spirit. It's all found in love, in the love of God. And Jesus explains what that love looks like, how it acts, what it feels like. It's obedience. The Father loves the Son because He's obedient. And the Son expects that that love, the love that He's given us, He expects that love to make a difference, to empower those that it was given to, for them to obey. He expects that the love that the Father has for Him, the same love that the Spirit has given to those that the Father has given to the Son, which is what happened to everyone who's truly regenerate. Here, Ezekiel 36, chapter, or chapter 36, 26 and 27. God said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He expects that they will live and act in that new heart, in that new spirit. And they will act in this manner. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Which brings us to our text from today. But before I begin, I want you guys to do something that's going to be really uncomfortable for you. Pick up your pen. Pick up your Bible. And I want you to circle words in your Bible. I know it's not blasphemous to do that, but it is very helpful. I want you to circle all the conjunctions that are found in these verses. Conjunctions are words that connect thoughts. They are the cartilage that connects the, the strength of the muscles to the bones. Conjunction or Conjunctions are words like if, and but. If you don't have a Bible, go and grab one. And there's pens in the back too. If and but. These words are paramount for you to see, for you to understand who you are in Christ. To see what power and ability have been given because you are in Christ. Now, there are no conjunctions in the first two verses of our text, but there are commands. Verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. And greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. We are commanded to love. But what is love? Is it warm hugs, soft kisses, friendly feelings, because we have such a worldly, worldly definition of the reality of this thing called love, we are tossed to and fro by the winds of the world. We fall in and out of love. We are told of that couple, they're no longer going to be married because they've lost that loving feeling. We are told that love stinks, that love hurts, that love is the drug that we're thinking of. We have no idea what love is. But verse 13 defines love for us. And again, we are reminded that love is not an emotion. It's not rooted in, grounded in feelings. Love is not some mystical experience. Love is an active response of obedience. And true love produces obedience. Obedience was the proof that Jesus used in chapter 14, verse 31, that he loved the Father. When he said, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. This is the proof that he said to, to these men and us to describe all those that love him. This is what he said of us. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, John 13, 35. 
It is the proof that you are a disciple, as told to us in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the shocking thing is that in verse 12, we are commanded to love. But we're not commanded to love Christ or God. We're commanded to love one another. But who is this one another that Jesus is talking about? Is it all mankind? The world thinks so. The American evangelical church thinks so. We are the world, after all. We should love all mankind. We should be nice to all mankind. This is what Jesus meant here, right? Wrong. Who was he speaking to at that moment? Think about this. He was sitting in an upper room with a select group of people. Who were gathered around that table? It was the disciples. It was the church. It was they who are being told to love one another, the church. Not the universal ecumenical church, but the church, the local body. And this is the same command that we have been given. We have been commanded to love one another, the local church, those that we have covenanted with. And you're sitting there thinking, I don't know about that. Not convinced that this is what Jesus meant? Well, listen to some verses from the letter written to a church, the church at Ephesus. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. And then in chapter 2, it says, In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, he's talking to a group of people, a church. Chapter 2, verse 22. Then in chapter 3, to me, though I'm very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things. So that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. John chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. And then, John, or I'm sorry, in Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Who were the, these apostles given to? Who are these pastors given to? I'm not a pastor somewhere else. There's no other pastor is your pastor. Still not convinced that this is the local body being spoken of in this epistle? That these people, the people that you have covenanted with, are the ones that you're supposed to love and esteem more than others? Hear then this from the last chapter that was written to this local body, to this church, to the church at Ephesus. Wives, submit to your own husbands, not to every husband, your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself is Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Not individuals, the church, and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be without holy and without blemish. 
Ephesians 5, 22-27. No, saints, part of the reason the church is deemed non-essential is because we have been ill-taught concerning it. We think that we do not need to, are not required to covenant together as the church. We think we have been taught that we can be Lone Ranger Christians, that we can love the Lord and demonstrate that we love the Lord by being disobedient to him and not loving his church, not loving each other. Ask yourself this, who are all those one another commandments given to? Who are you supposed to love? How are you to know who they are? How do pastors, how do I know who I will be held responsible for as told to me in Hebrews 13, 17? Well, if you're married, you know who you are commanded to love, who you have covenanted with. So who have you covenanted with as the body of Christ? Have you covenanted with them? Or have you been taught to love the church like a harlot, like a one-night stand, like a temporary boyfriend or girlfriend? Yeah, I'll try this one for a while. Nope, I don't like that one. No latte machine. So I'm going to go to the next. Nope, I don't like that one. The pastor talks way too long. On to the next. Nope, don't like that one either. The people didn't make me feel special when I walked through those doors and my Shekinah glory was just all there. They didn't even make me feel special. Saints, we are to love each other. We are to emulate Jesus and love his church, his local body, which is the local manifestation of him in the world. And this all brings us back to verses 14 and 15. And here we find our first conjunctions. Did you find them? If in verse 14 and but in verse 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. In verse 14, there is something that we do. Something that proves our love for the Lord. We obey. And as I said last week, there are two pillars in the Christian life and experience, love and obedience. Do we know them as the pillars of our life? Would we say that the love of God and obedience for him are the pillars of our life? Would these be the two things that someone would put on your tombstone if you were to die today? The two things that describe you the best. But again, we should, must always be careful never to reverse the pillars and try to be obedient so that God can love us. Because that's a works-based theology that is not of God. Obedience springs from love. It's a response to love. We love because he first loved us, Romans 5.8. We can never earn his love, deserve his love. We can never have him love us more or less for any reason including our obedience. That's Romans 8, 38 and 39. But if we love, then we obey. And if you are his friends, you will obey his commandments. But as I said earlier, conjunctions are like linking words, empowering words. In fact, you can replace that if in verse 14 with the word since to get a more full understanding of what Christ is meaning here. You are my friends since you do what I command you. And then in verse 15, we find the how of our obedience. And it's not in and of ourselves, but it is rooted and grounded in Jesus. When he says, no longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not understand what his master is doing. But I have called you friends because everything I learned from my father I have made known to you. Because we are his friends, because we have been made a slave of Christ and then called a friend by him, because of these things, we can obey. And this is where so many of us get off base, why we try to do these things on our own. We finally, we actually do recognize, though, that we can't do this, 
that we really don't love God and hate sin. So, so many of us just give up. We have never been taught to seek the one that is the source of the power to obey. The one that calls us friends after calling us slaves. He, the one that calls us friends who has commanded us to obey, he then reminds these men and us of that foundational fact that we are not righteous outside of him. Verse 16, but you did not choose me, but I chose you. Here's another one of those conjunctions. Another connecting word, empowering word. And here in our verse, Jesus lays to rest that question concerning the how of people coming to him. Do people choose him? Do people have the power to accept to choose Christ? If you say yes, then it makes complete sense that the lives of these men look so different than their modern American evangelical who calls themselves Christian. Because these men didn't get a chance to choose Jesus. He chose them, which is why they can obey. Why they did love each other, esteem each other of more value than all that were outside of his body. Those that do choose Christ as their own Savior, choose a different Christ. A false Jesus that does not command and cannot empower but to those that he did choose, to those that he did command, obey. He tells us what the benefits are of that choosing, of that love that has been given to us. In verses 16 and 17, he says, I've appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. And this is my command to you. Love one another. Jesus began this, farewell, this section of the farewell discourse by telling these men that he is the true vine and they are the branches. And because they are the branches of the true vine, they will produce fruit, which he reiterates here in this verse. And what is the fruit that we're told that they're going to bear? The answer to that question is found in verse 17. This is my command to you. Love one another. Love is that fruit. Love for the church. Do you love the church? Do you esteem these that you covenant with as being of more value, more worth than others? Do you pour into them? Have you gotten to know them? Do you spur them on to righteousness? Do you laugh with them? Cry with them? Pray with them? This is the first answer to the question, what is the fruit that we will produce? And this is the same thing that we are told in chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And the second fruit, fruit that we will produce is also rooted and grounded in love, in obedience to the Lord. It's the love of for God, the love for God, and the love for his ministry of reconciliation. Because he is divine, and we are the branches, we will do that which he did. And he came to seek and save the lost. He came to purchase us from hell. And he's given us the same ministry that he was given. Here's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are, are, not maybe, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And this is his appeal. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because he is the true vine. 
Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Because he is the bread of life. We who have been redeemed by him have been given the ability, the, the ability and even the supreme privilege of being given the great position of being his, his slaves, his friends, his brothers, his sons. And position always comes with power. We have been given Christ who dwells in us, Galatians 2.20. We have been given the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, as told to us in 1 Corinthians 6.19. We have been given the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. We can and will love the church and can and will obey Christ. We can do these things. We just have never been taught. We've never been shown that we can and even are required to do them. And for this reason, our lives have been lacking. Our love has grown cold, and the church has fallen on hard times. And then there's another gift that Christ has given us, another evidence that we are his, which he begins telling us about in verse 18. Verse 18, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. The gift that we are given by our loving Father is that we're going to be hated. Did you circle those conjunction words in verses 18 and 19? There's three of them. There's two ifs and a but. The first conjunction is that the world will hate you if you are of Christ. Now we have to admit, no one likes being hated. In fact, we hate it. We hate the fact that if you stand up against abortion, the world's going to hate you. We hate the fact that when you tell people the truth about homosexuality being a sin, and that there are only two genders, not 64, and you don't get to choose which gender you are, they hate us. We don't like that when we tell the world that there is no other name under, under heaven and earth which any can be saved except the name of Jesus the Christ, we hate that they hate us because of this. But we need to grasp that the world only hates us because it really hates Jesus and not us. The, the world hates Christ living inside of you, which is an evidence that you are of him, which then should give you confidence in your profession of faith. And we didn't choose to be of him. We didn't choose to be reconciled to his father. He chose us. And Jesus even tells us the reason why the world is going to hate us is because we've been moved from being part of it to no longer of it. It knows that we are aliens living in a strange and evil land. And it hates us. But not really us. It hates him living inside of us. But as you're sitting there, ask yourself, does the world hate you? Believe me, I know how uncomfortable that question is because it was uncomfortable for me. Does the world hate you? And you want to know what the hatred of the world looks like, feels like? A great example of it is, can be seen now by how the left is reacting to the, all those that will not comply with their cancel culture, free will, inclusive, let all people be what they want to be mantra. You know the one I'm talking about. If you stand for anything that they stand against, you're canceled. You lose your job. You lose your social or political position. You will be lambasted. You will be derided. You will lose your Facebook account. And do you desire, do you desire to still see whether or not the world hates Jesus? If you want to desire to see if this is true or not, just go on to one of those publicly funded government camps, the local college, and preach the gospel. 
openly pronounce the truth of heaven and hell. Exercise your free speech to hold this truth to be self-evident, and you will see for yourself if the world still hates Jesus or not. But again, does the world hate you? Because this is an evidence given by Christ that we are, in fact, of Christ, and he is in us. Or is the world pretty much okay with you? When you're in the public marketplace, are you willing to speak truth concerning homosexuality? Or do you just keep your mouth shut? How about the sin of that heterosexual couple who are claiming that they are of Christ, but are living together in sin? You may be asking yourself, do I really need to say anything, though? Do I really need to pipe in and put in my two cents? Verse 20. Remember the word that I spoke to you. No slave is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. If they kept my word, they will keep yours as well. In verse 20, Jesus makes this thought process a bit more interesting. First, he reminds these men that they aren't free agents. They are not honored guests in his house. They are slaves. They have been purchased at a great price for a reason. And then he clarifies who he's talking about concerning the world hating him and them. When he says, if they kept my word, they will keep yours as well. Well, who's he talking about here? He's talking about the pseudo-religious, the church-going God-haters. And in this verse, we are given a glimpse as to how we are to act. We are to act like Christ did, which means that we don't go along to get along. We don't stand silent while right is being called wrong, where lies are being, told, are being spoken as truth, where games and events replace the true worship of God. And just like with Christ, all we have to do is speak truth, softly, gently, but firmly and with conviction. And when we do, they will prove that they hate God. You stand against that social justice so-called gospel and call it out for the lie from the pit of hell that it is, and you will be persecuted, slandered. You stand for the doctrines of grace, and you will be persecuted. You tell the truth to those that are attendees, or even those that continue to work at a, and lead at a place that dresses themselves up as the church. You tell them the danger that they are in because they go along to get along, because they play at the true worship of the true and only God, because they don't honor him, don't worship him, and they prove it because they are more concerned about keeping their job or pleasing their children than standing up for Christ. You do that, and they will hate you. But we don't want to do that. We may lose our job. We may lose our social status. People may think ill about us. They may actually talk bad about me. They may do that. But will they publicly arrest you? Will they tie you up, beat you within an inch of your life, and then parade you through the open streets naked to the place where they will publicly nail you to a cross, cause you such pain that you will publicly lose control of your bowels, publicly suffer in agony, publicly be spit on, mocked as you publicly suffer? Do we need to speak up? Do we really need to speak up? You have to answer this question then. Does eternity matter? Are you dealing with just mere mortals or are you dealing with eternal beings? Are you just seeing these people as people with no value? But more importantly, do you see the value of your Savior do you see the value of being in him, of having his life, his spirit living inside of you? Do you see? Do you not know that eternity is at stake here? And the reason that we must speak up 
are given to us in verses 21 and 22. But they will treat you like this because of my name, since they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they, are, they have no excuse for their sin. The first reason that we must speak up is found in verse 21. They will treat us like this because of his name. You have heard me go on and on about the name of God, the great I am, Yahweh. You think that it's silly that, it, that the name of God is written in the Old Covenant, that when it is written with capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that I pronounce it as Yahweh. You think that it's of little importance that Jesus took that name eight times in this gospel. But they will hate us, and they will persecute us because of his name. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, you're thinking to yourself, really? Will those at the Mormon place of worship, the Jehovah's Witness place of worship, the mosque, will they hate us if we use the name of Jesus? How about those within the modern evangelical movement? Will they hate us if we use his name, say the name of Jesus? No. You can go to every one of those places and say Jesus, and none of them are going to hate you. So what did Jesus mean when he said that they will treat us like this because of his name? Was he mistaken? Or maybe this just doesn't apply anymore. But this is why I speak Yahweh when capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is written. Because why I have made such a big deal about Jesus using the name of God as his own. Because his name is his nature. God is not his name. That's his title. Just like Christ is not his name, it's his title. So what is the name of God? The name of God is the essence of his nature. It is the physical manifestation of divine truth. And there is power in the name. Listen to these verses. Those that believe on his name are saved, as told to us in John 1.12. We are told in Micah 4.5 that we are to walk in the name of God. We see in Exodus 6, verse 3, that it is different from the title of God. He said, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But I did not make my name Yahweh known to them. It's the third of the great commandments as given to us in Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name Yahweh, your God, in vain. For Yahweh will, hold him, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then in Deuteronomy 28, verses 58 through 59, we see how important the name of God really is. And this is why we have to stand up and say something to those people that blaspheme the name of God when they play at church. Listen to this. If you are not careful to do the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, Yahweh your God, then Yahweh will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. Afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And it's to his name that we are to bring glory. Psalm six or 86 verse 9, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. And it was for his great name that we're told by Jesus that we are supposed to pray. In his name. Matthew 6, 9. Pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And if we're saved, it is for his great name that we are saved. Again, that 1 Samuel 12, 22 verse. Yahweh will not forsake his people. Not because we are so righteous. Not because we're so good looking. Not because we do such great works. He will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it has pleased Yahweh to make you, it has pleased him to make you a people for himself. 
and you still think it's silly to pronounce capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D as Yahweh, that it's of no consequence that Jesus claimed this as his name, that those that claim his salvation, they, you think it's of little consequence that they blaspheme his name among the nations by playing games and lying about his nature, lying about his supreme hatred for sin, lying about his salvation. It's when we speak truth concerning his nature that these will reveal who and what they are worshiping. It's then that you will lose favor with them. And it is them that will, they will see you as a radical, as a divisive person. It's when you speak, and if you are of Christ, you must speak. When you speak of the exclusive truth of Christ to them, they will hate you because of his name. Some of them reject the exclusivity of Christ as Savior, that he, is only, that he is the only way to the Father. Some of them reject the exclusivity of him as Savior over salvation, claiming that we choose him. Some of them reject him as being truth, meaning that they are uh, to be of him, that they must preach the, preach the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And because they reject the one sent in the name of God, the one who is, in, who is the exact image of God, the one who is God incarnate, they also reject the one who sent him. And in verse 22, Jesus moves the focus off of us and back onto him. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for sin. I know this may seem tedious, but we need to really understand what Jesus is saying here, what he is actually meaning. He's not saying that if he had not come, that people would not be guilty of treason. He's not making an excuse that if you've never heard of him, that you're free from the just judgment of God. No, death has reigned from the since, since the fall of Adam, and death is the ultimate earthly punishment for the treason of sin. This truth is told to us in Romans chapter 5. Sin reigned before the law was given. The law didn't make sin sin. It just pointed to the thing that the sin is opposite of, the, in opposition to. That's told to us in Galatians 3.24. And when Christ came, he came in fulfillment of the law. That's Matthew 5.17. To put flesh on the law. And when he came as a spotless lamb of God, he condemned the world by his life. And we who live in him, we really do live in him. And he is the just condemnation of the world, of sin. And he is the justifier of those who have faith in him. This is what he means when he says that if he had not come and spoken to them, that they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for sin. That's an explanation of the first sentence of verse 22. This is why he is the light of the world, the bread of life, the way, the truth, and the life. And this is the meaning behind verses 16 through 21 of the third chapter of John that tell us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is, and he has become the litmus test for the world. He is both the prosecuting attorney against those that will receive the just judgment and wrath of his father, and he's also the defense attorney for those that receive the undeserved, unmerited grace of God as the wrath of the father that they deserve is poured out on him. And in verse 23, he points out the unbreakable link between him and the father. He says, whoever hates me hates my father as well. Saints, you cannot love God and hate sin. I'm sorry, you cannot love God and love sin. You cannot love God and not obey God. You cannot love God and think that you can decide if you will accept the clear teaching of his word as truth or not. You can't do these things any more than you cannot hate Jesus and not hate his father. And the reason for this is that these things are their nature their essence, they are him. 
that person that decides that they can live in sin and still think that they love God, they're mistaken. That woman who decides that the word of God doesn't apply any longer, thinks that God does not have the exclusive right to say who will be an elder in his church, she's mistaken in thinking that she loves God. The person who thinks that they are saved but has no care for the word of God, no care for the church of God, no care for the holiness of God, they are mistaken in thinking that they love God. To love God, you must hate sin. You must love his church, love his word, love his son. Verses 24 through 25. And if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this is written to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Jesus then uses their law as a proof that he is the Messiah, that their law spoke about. He quotes from Psalm 35 and Psalm 69. It was their law that these self-righteous, religious people, what they were so proud of, they loved thinking that they had the law, that they were actually keeping the law. They thought that the law proved that they were of God. What they didn't understand was that the law was their schoolmaster, that it would stand, that the law would stand against them on the day of judgment because they rejected the author and fulfiller of that law. And then Jesus finishes this section of scripture, a section that was difficult for the disciples to hear and grasp and hasn't been easy for, for us to hear or grasp either with 20, verses 26 and 27. He says, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Did you think that I forgot about those conjunctions that we're giving in those preceding verses? Did you actually circle them? Did you actually take notice of them? Because if you didn't, then you're going to wonder at how in the world we're supposed to fulfill the commands of God. How and why will we desire to have the world hate us? We think that we have an excuse to not obey. The world thinks that it has an excuse not to submit and obey through confessing with their mouths and believing in their hearts that Jesus is Lord. But Jesus has taken away all those excuses. He came, and for this reason, they have no excuse not to believe. Verse 22. And he came and he went away and he has sent the other paraclete to live inside of us. The one who has regenerated our hearts, given us the ability to see him as Lord, given us the ability to know ourselves as sinner, given us his hope, his joy, his peace. That's verse 26. And on our own, in our flesh, we will not, we cannot have these things happen. But, and if God is in you and you are in him, but did he go? Did he send the other paraclete? Did he die? Did he rise? Since he did, and since the other advocate, the helper, the paraclete has come, the spirit of truth will testify about the reality and truth of Christ. And so must we. I don't know if I can do this. But have you been, been, been given the ability to recognize God as holy? Have you been given the ability to recognize yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior? Have you been given the ability to recognize Jesus, the biblical Jesus, as that Savior? If so, if that is reality, if so, then the first part of verse 26 has happened to you already. The Spirit has come. He has made you alive. He has testified about Jesus. And here is found the strength to the command concerning you. Because he did these things, and since he has given you a new heart, a new soul, he has also given you the ability to do this. You can obey. I can obey. We can be his witnesses. We can be hated by the world. 
And you can, you can open your mouth and tell the truth. And you can do this because he's come. And he's given us his spirit. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I was told many years ago, it's seldom easy to do what is right. And seldom right to do what is easy. But since Jesus went and since Jesus has sent his spirit, since he is seated at the right hand of the Father, since he is ever making intercession for you, since his spirit is living with and in you, you can obey. You can open your mouth. And you can testify that Jesus is Lord. Jesus the Christ has come. And because of this, the world has no excuse for not running to him. But the world hates God. And Christ has come, and because of this, we have been redeemed and no longer have an excuse to not testify about him. And the world will hate us. And this is a gift from God to us. When they do, when it does, we can rest then. We can rest assured that we are in great company. And that great company, who is our great God, we can rest assured that he is in us. Let's pray.